Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today, you're going to be meeting Cindy McCown, who is a documentary filmmaker. Um, she's a Cornell graduate, almost went to law school, uh, but as she'll explain, took a very different path and ended up making documentaries. Specifically, she's got a new documentary out right now called Unacceptable Risk, which tells the story of a prominent cancer researcher who began uh, rethinking assumptions about the causes of cancer and the true burden of environmentally induced cancers. It's only 16 minutes long and it's out there. You can actually watch this online at www.cancerfreeeconomy.org backslash unacceptable risk. Um, check that out. Um, in the same way, you will not be risking anything if you put an Abe's muffin in your face. You're only going to be risking pleasure, the pleasure of a wonderful allergen-free eating experience in all sorts of healthy, lovely flavors, lemon poppy seed, blueberry, they have chocolate brownies that will change your life. So you want to check that out. If you have questions about this podcast, about Abe's Muffins or Cindy, uh, you can go to isthatreallylegal.com, leave a comment. Um, hey, subscribe to this podcast or, you know, review it. Uh, that would really help us out too. And uh, feel free to let us know if there's somebody you think that we should have on this podcast. Because who knows, I might be able to get them. That would be fun. Maybe it's even you. Who knows? But for now, it's going to be Cindy McCallum, uh, documentary filmmaker. Oh, did I mention we're friends and I've known her for decades? Cindy McCallum, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin? Thank you. Very glad to be here. Yeah, as I will say in the intro, uh, you and I have known each other, I actually don't know how long, but it's been more than a few years. And when I first met you, I was living in the Boston area. And we've since learned that you and I have a lot more in common than we even knew we had. And we'll talk about that. Um, uh, I decided to do this interview when I saw your last big project, which is a 15 minute film. Um, basically about the environmental consequences of chemicals and other pollutants and issues in terms of causing cancer. And we definitely want to get into that. Um, but I, I want to give people a background about you because um, you have had an interesting journey. And part of what I do this podcast for is to show, especially women, queer people, people of color, that there is no such thing as the same journey. And also, frankly, any straight white guys listening, because there's a lot to learn, as I have learned and continue to learn. So jumping right off, you grew up in Long Island, just like I did. I did, yes, yes. Yeah. My first jumping off point, though, was um, Bayside, Queens. That was the first place I lived. And um, actually really liked it a lot. And then um, my family moved to Long Island. We were in a very, very small <laughs> garden apartment 
you know, three kids and two adults and some illegal cats. So we, <laughs> <laughs> we moved to a house in Long Island. In Just to be clear, illegal cats doesn't mean they came across the border and didn't have immigration paperwork. That's right. Sure you weren't allowed to have pets at the apartment, is that right? No, we weren't. And in fact, I think we we may have gotten an eviction notice. And oh. uh, but luckily, we were planning to move anyway. So you know, it all worked out. You've always been a cat person, then. Yes, absolutely. Or do you have any cats currently? We do. We've got one cat. We have. Um, we she was the one of the offspring of a feral cat. Um, we, we actually um, sort of came upon her when we were going to Jamaica Plain Open Studios, which is this wonderful, you know, gallery, blocks and blocks in Jamaica Plain, which is a neighborhood of Boston of all these amazing artists. And um, we happened to see the sign, you know, saying kittens. And we had lost our beloved cat who, um, my husband had adopted when she was six weeks old, and she lived until almost 20. What was her name again? Yar. Yeah, I met Yar. And yes. of course, <laughs> Yar is, was named for a Star Trek Next Generation character. Exactly. Tasha Yar. <laughs> yes. Wow, um, we are all nerds. And yes, we are. Friends. Well, and our new cat who is not so new, we got her about 10 years ago, is um, named Roe for after another Star Trek character, Ensign Roe, uh, who I can't really get into all the details of it because I'm not as much of a Trekkie as my husband is. Well, we'll let people write in and inform other people. They can go to isthatreallylegal.com and leave a message, um, which is... If that's what they want to do, God bless them. Um, so uh, I know you ultimately ended up in Huntington or Hempstead. Yes, I guess, Huntington. yes that's right. That's right. Yep. And I went to high school. I went to, um, well, the, it was kind of a, a part of Huntington called Dix Hills. And I went to Half Hollow Hills High School. Just so people understand, I grew up in Massapequa <laughs> Park on the South Shore, which was often the working class slash mafia section of Long Island. Um, <laughs> you can write me about that too. But the North Shore for the most part was hoity-toity, high-end, Billy Joel as a kid. But you, uh, Dix Hills and Half Hollow, those were pretty elite um, moneyed places. I'm not asking you to tell me about your net worth, but um, it seemed like it would probably be a pretty cool place to grow up. Was that accurate? Well, you know, it's it was, you know, Huntington is like right smack in the middle of Long Island. It's not it's not really North Shore or or at least where we live was not North Shore, was not South Shore. It's like kind of smack in the middle. Uh, okay. And, um it was definitely a growing place because you know, Long Island for a long time was really potato farms. You know, there there was a lot of small farming that went on there. Um, and so it it was a, a place that was starting to like really boom. And as people were able to and wanted to leave New York City, you know, for kind of more, more fresh air, you know, more, you know, whatever. And, you know, I have to say also white flight, right? Um, sure. 
from the city, um, feeling like school would safer and all of that, you know, certainly my, my parents were in that, you know, kind of trajectory that a lot of white families were in as well. Well, a lot of people have to remember that you and I are children of the 60s. Yeah. And also we grew up uh, in a Robert Moses wet dream. Uh, <laughs> if people don't know who Robert Moses was, if you look at most of the bridges other than the ancient, you know, not Brooklyn or Manhattan bridges, but certainly the bridges out to Long Island, those were all created by a guy named Robert Moses. And he created all these highways that go out to Long Island um, and all these beaches. And it was an incredibly racist endeavor, especially in retrospect. There's a movie called Motherless Brooklyn that goes into mm -hmm. that. I haven't seen it yet. I really want to. But I did learn one thing from an interview that Ed Norton did about that film which is that the parkways, which there's a Southern state and Northern state parkway on each side of Long Island, and they have overpasses. And the overpasses are relatively low and it's pretty, but it wasn't designed to be pretty. It was designed to keep city buses from using those parkways so that inner city people, insert black Puerto Rican, what have you, um, couldn't come out and use the public beaches that really the white people would use them. It's just a tiny example of institutional yeah. racism that we're always happy to point out here at isthatreallylegal.com. Uh, but also that I, yeah. you know, since Black, you know, the pandemic and Black Lives Matter have been incredibly educational experiences for many of us. As I've said several times on this program, I'm going to be 60 this year. I'm really well educated. And yet, there's so much I had no idea about just rolling through life as, I'm not sure I'm white because I'm Jewish. So like most people would consider me white until you get to a certain point and then they look at you like, well, you're Jewish, so no. Uh, but for the most part, I, you know, I have a very privileged life. So there are things I don't butt up against, but I've made a lot of friends who are all across every kind of spectrum, whether they're trans or black or whatever. And they run into all sorts of stuff. And this year has been incredibly educational. Um, yeah. You know, movies like The 13th by mm -hmm. Anna DeVay. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, just lots of, I, I can't list them all. I've talked about them before. Have you had a similar experience or were you always totally hip to coming from a privileged back? Well, I don't want to, first of all, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that you're a privileged person because you, you are uh, very keenly aware, always strike me as being keenly aware of the needs of others. So I don't want to set you up in a certain way. But you and I do come from a privileged background. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I don't think there's any denying that growing up white, growing up middle class, you know, having, you know, sort of the opportunities that I had that my parents had. I mean, my my father is a great example of his generation in that he grew up, you know, pretty poor, you know, uh, basically in a rural-ish town in um, north of New York City. And he essentially, you know, um, enlisted in the army during World War II. And part of the strategy was that he knew he could get an education after that. If and he survived. And so he did, you know, and, right. but, you know, I, I actually learned through um, 
another project I was working on um, that that basically, you know, men of color didn't have the same access to the GI Bill. I was shocked to discover housing. that too. We, yeah, I, I grew only up recently in, discovered that. I know. I where I grew up in Queens was basically housing for veterans and their families. It was one of those, you know, communities, but there were no people of color there. You know, it, it's undeniable that, you know, we have had this privilege. And I think that the, you know, amazing thing and the important thing of what's happened this year, this past year with George Floyd's murder and um, Black Lives Matter movement is that we're knowing more and we're, you know, interested in more and we want to understand our place in this and that, you know, we have to grapple with that. Well, some of us want to know more. You know, yeah, some of us do. No, some of us do. And I think we have to grapple with the shame of it, you know, and we have to grapple with, you know, just being willing to understand things that we didn't know before. And I really, I, I want to make sure I don't, I want to circle back to this a little later with your most recent film, uh, because when we talk about environmental issues with cancer, and we will get to it more, there's also a tremendous racism in oh, environmental yeah. stuff. Absolutely. And, um, but I, I, I'm I'm trying to keep us in a sort of straight line. It is a futile effort, but one I'll try <laughs> nonetheless. Um, <laughs> uh, you ultimately ended up, you're an Ivy Leaguer, which is not how I see you, but you went to Cornell, right? Yes, I did. Um, and if somebody said to me, oh, you know, Cindy's an Ivy Leaguer, I would go, oh, she went to Brown? Because you strike me as kind of a peace love. Um, and I may be a complete, even though I've known you a long time, there's so many times when I know people and I'm completely wrong. I misjudge them based on my own prejudices. But, you know, you're married to uh, a singer-songwriter. Mm -hmm. um, you are one of the artsiest, practical filmmakers I know. Um, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, uh, what was the Cornell experience like? Because I have to tell you, Ivy League schools are getting such a bad rap lately because of some of the, I'm just going to say it, the fascists that have these incredibly great resumes, but either they their parents bought their way through their schools or they came out like evil geniuses, or I, I can't, I can't explain why so many people I find abhorrent, or whose lives are antithetical to the human experience, have like you know Princeton and Harvard all over their resumes, and I'm like, and it's just, I, uh, how do? So it's well, not up to I, you to explain it, but no, like, what but, was uh, your experience? Let, let me tell you a little bit about Cornell and and why. I wanted to go there actually sure. one thing that's very very cool about cornell and and always has been is that it's a lot of different colleges and so there are these land-grant colleges that essentially are like state universities and that's how i initially got in um i wasn't you know 
part of, I, I did eventually go to arts and sciences because that was something where, you know, I got very interested and there were professors that I really want, wanted to study with. But the thing about Cornell is that because there are these basically state schools, there's a lot more diversity there. And by diversity, I mean not just racial and ethnic diversity, but there are a lot of rural farmers who go to the ag school. You know, there are a lot of first generation college students actually who, who are there. And um, there has often and always, you know, I wouldn't say often and always, but my experience has been that, you know, Cornell is a real spectrum that you were probably more apt to find people like yourself, whoever you are, than a lot of other Ivy League schools because of that diversity. I do um, actually have a lot of friends who went to Cornell, including one of the co-owners of Abe's Muffins, a sponsor of this <laughs> show. He went to Cornell uh, before going to law school, and he's now a baker. Uh, he's, uh -huh. a, he's a businessman, but as a baker, is one of the things he does. And I have a friend uh, who uh, is a marketing person with J. Crew and that giant organization. Uh, and as you know, I went to Union, which is yep. also freezing cold. And That's where my brother went to college. I didn't know that. What year did your brother graduate? Many years before. <laughs> okay. We'll leave it alone then. So had you ever been on campus at Union College? Yeah, Disconnected? yeah, very nice campus. Oh, cool. I have yet to be at Cornell, uh, but I envision it. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, going to college in sort of the upstate New York experience, things are, walls are covered in ivy. It all looks like it's out, the schools are out of central casting for college experience. Yeah. Uh, but then once January hits, you basically are just freezing anywhere yeah. you, you go and you're it's covering cold. in fleece. Yeah, yeah, it is. But, you know, it is beautiful there. And I, I have to say, I feel like I learned about political activism there. Well, you did. You were not an arts major in college. You were a government major. I was right? a government major. And and actually, you know, many things were happening that time. I'll totally date myself, but it really was sort of like a burgeoning of the, se of the second wave of feminism. And so early on in my time there, I became very involved in a rape crisis group, which was basically started by a lot of students. And it was really kind of the beginning of looking at, you know, what what is rape anyway, you know, is it, and, and kind of redefining it as, you know, aggression against women and power and violence, not. Right. It's not a sex crime. Exactly. It's, it's often yeah. called a sex crime and you, sorry, I, oh my God, I'm mansplaining and everyone's going to kill me. You know better than I do. Uh, it's your show. You're allowed to do that sometimes. But yes. And well, as an attorney, you know, these yeah. are the things that happen. Yeah. As a lawyer, when I represent somebody who's been uh, convicted of certain crimes, people call rape a sex crime in the lingo of lawyers even today in the district attorney's office or what have you. And, uh, but the reality is their crimes, yes, there is a sexual component in that genitals may be involved. I said genitals on my show, but um, it's really, yeah, there's a power dynamic. And 
what's interesting is how you know we can fast forward to the Me Too movement, um, and there's yeah. such a tremendous amount of time that happened from. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to say that. Oh no, absolutely. But, but like, and, what, and, like that's yeah. such a long period of time that's before right. Me Too shows up. How, yeah. It's it's I don't know if I'm talking to you this way because you're so educated. I'm automatic, but it's a Sisyphean effort. You know, it, it feels like for those of you who don't know the myth of Sisyphus, um, this is the guy with the rock yeah. who's constantly pushing it up the hill but never gets it up there, right? And it yeah. feels Kafkaesque. Um, but you you the struggle or whatever has been going on has been going on for more than a few years. Well, it's been going on for throughout throughout history you know, since since humans were first you know around. But but I think that and and yes, I think that what is frustrating for people like me who've kind of been following this or actively involved in it for a long time is that why has this all taken so much time and why does it persist? Because we know that, you know, with the Me Too movement, it's not over. I mean, I think that there's more awareness and there's more calling people on it, but, you know, it's certainly still a problem. It's certainly, you know, there's, there's trafficking of women that happens, you know, not just in, you know, foreign but in the United States. And there are things that persist that we really, you know, sort of need to address. And, and, you know, going back to Cornell, this was a place where I could, you know, actually, I wrote a thesis on this. I, I got a grant to study outside of Cornell um, to be able to kind of study rape crisis groups. I interviewed rapists who were in prison. I wrote about that, you know, and I was able to actually, you know, take something that I felt very passionate about and to kind of further, not just my education, but to kind of put it out into the world. So that's my Cornell experience. It was pretty, pretty wow. extraordinary. But I also, you know, I also learned about the labor movement there. I also learned about you know, racial inequities. I learned about, you know, so many different things and I was very much an activist. So when I left Cornell, I was kind of at a loss and and I actually almost went to law school. I got accepted to three law schools and I decided to defer and I'm really glad I did because then I got into labor and community organizing. Which and law, I have to ask what law schools you decided not to go to. So George Washington University, Great school. Uh, BU Law School, and then I got a full scholarship to Washington and Lee um, Law School. That in Virginia? <laughs> in Virginia, yeah. Wow, a full scholarship. It I just want people to understand that is it. a quite an achievement. And I'll be the first to say that not only is college not for everybody, although I had an awesome experience and you did too, obviously, because mm -hmm. there are some people just college is not for them. I'm not saying they're stupid. I'm saying it's not for them the same way that, I don't know, musical theater might not be for somebody, although that's harder for me to understand. <laughs> uh, but also law school is definitely not for everybody. I'm glad I went, but there was a time when I stopped being a lawyer, as you may know, and I was a full-time actor. And that was a great experience. I'm more happy as a lawyer now than I think I ever was. 
but it's no one should go through three years of law school if they don't want to. That is like craziness. So instead, and, yeah, and 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 I just want to add, I think that there are some amazing lawyers, and that it works for people. But I think that you know, luckily, I kind of knew myself well enough that that wasn't exactly my trajectory. That wasn't where you know, kind of my my interest, my passion, and my training would take me. And and I'm glad because. I think had I done that, I may have felt committed to something that maybe was half-hearted for me. And I'm glad that I found film because that was, that really was and has continued to be the thing that most is true to who I am and what I enjoy. So I'm sure you would have been a great lawyer, by the way, just for the record, uh, because you're passionate and uh, sure it helps to technically know things, but uh, people really need to follow their passions. Um, I, I think so. Otherwise, it's all, it's just work. It's just like a pill. <laughs> it is. Oh, I, I think anyone and everyone's had a job, which has been just like, this is work. And while certainly it is work, what we, each of us do, um, I think there are, are days where well, I'll just say I'm so much happier with my quote unquote work, whatever it is, even if it means going to a prison, if it, even if it means talking to somebody about a deceased loved one or working on a contract together. When I have a varied practice of what I do these days. Um, not One is not better than another. It's all uh, interesting to me. And I would assume it's the same for you because I think that some people think they're not a successful filmmaker if they're not at Sundance or something. But my experience of your work is that you're an incredibly successful filmmaker and I wanna trans transfer our attention to that a little bit. When you left Cornell, what did you ultimately end up doing? Um, well, I so I became an organizer for an organization called Nine to Five, which was an organization for women office workers to get better wages, rights and respect on the job, health and safety. And actually talking about film, there's an excellent documentary that's just come out that is on independent lens, which is the story of nine to five. And it really talks about the early part of the movement, which I was not in, I was, you know, younger than that, but I, you know, the organization was very active and started in Boston. So I was kind of a later generation of people, of women who, you know, worked there and were trained there. And, you know, to be honest with you, so much of what I learned about how to do things and how to make things happen and how to make a film came from my training as an organizer at nine to five. And, um, you know, that's uh, Julia Reichart and Steve Bogner are the um, filmmakers that did that and did the film. And actually they won an Academy Award last year for their other film, American Factory, which is wonderful. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna sidestep yeah. for a second and say, I saw that <laughs> film. I've seen a lot of films this year as we all have because what the hell else are we doing? <laughs> and I was struck by how sad I was watching that film. 
uh, that Amer American factory, is that what it was called? Yes. Um, where, and if you haven't seen it yet, uh, I'll say a few things about it, but they will not ruin the film for you. We'll just say that in case you didn't know it, Detroit uh, was in the crapper for the last several decades because the auto industry, uh, it's complicated, but the bottom line is the auto industry is far less active in the United States than even you might think, given how much, how much of the parts are made in other countries and how often things are assembled in Canada or Mexico. And so the once thriving industry and factories were fallow. And then uh, I believe it was a Japanese uh, auto glass company came in. I think Chinese, but Chinese, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so, I'm not trying to be racist. I just blanked on it. Yeah, uh, But in fine. any event, um, <laughs> so long story short, we see a culture clash. And we have a, it's so obvious the difference in cultures. I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong, but I think that clearly there were mistakes made uh, on both parties before entering into this marriage. I don't know about you, but... I think you know about me, I am on my third and final marriage. And mistakes were made in the first two that I think might've been avoided before they were entered into. Certainly watching this film, which by the way was produced by a couple of people I'm a big fan of named Michelle and Barack Obama. Right. Uh, little name drop there, not that I know them, but it sounds good. Um, the bottom line of that film is that uh, it's educational. Uh, and like I said, sad, but informative. Another film, just as a side note, and about why documentaries are so amazing. I saw a film, and I'm probably going to get the name wrong. I want to say it was called Cripple Camp or Crip Camp. Oh, uh, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I really want to see that. One of my previous guests is a disability advocate, um, uh, Erin Batag, who was on my show, who has multiple sclerosis. And she turned me on to that film. And I was amazed at that film. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it, it, I'm much more of a music documentary guy. <laughs> um, Echo in the Canyon was this kind of mm -hmm. cool thing that Bob yeah, Dylan's son, Jacob Dylan, and where there's yeah. performances. Oh, good. So you, yeah, um, very good. But documentaries are powerful because, if this is my spiel, and you can correct me or give me your take. Um, not only do I learn something, but there's often this mistake that I made early on too, that people think, well, a documentary doesn't have uh, the same thing as a narrative. But I think right. a good documentary combines facts with a great story so yes. that it's not that it's not telling the truth. I mean, you're making choices as a director. Absolutely. You're putting my face in one particular place. Yeah. You can't, I, I would be, have an autistic breakdown if you showed me all the stuff there is about uh, cancer and the environment, I would yeah. not be able to concentrate. So you as a director make a decision before I ever see the film about what parts of it you're going to show me and what well, parts are going to be it, on the floor, right? Yeah, yes and no. Oh, yes, before you see the film. Right. <laughs> For us, it's a painstaking experience. <laughs> Which is a great transition to like, so what was, let, talk to us about, ultimately you became a documentary filmmaker. Yeah. And yeah. what was the, wow, it's such a big yeah I to take a bite out of well let me let me start with the most recent project just great um it kind of capsulized kind of 
I wouldn't say I knew it at the time, but I think that sometimes you know when you see a story that you want to tell and it just kind of like, it, it won't let you go. It's sort of like, you know that you won't be able to really live your life with any kind of ease if you don't somehow tackle it. And so that happened to me when I, when I heard Dr. Margaret Kripke speak. And this was about a decade ago. Um, she spoke at Harvard Law School about her experience being on the president's cancer panel. Now she, Dr. Kripke, um, is an amazing um, cancer researcher. She was the first woman who ever um, had her own department in cancer biology at MD Anderson Cancer Center, which is you know, the premier cancer hospital in the country. She was the first full professor female in the institution history. Um, and she was really a groundbreaking researcher in the immunology of skin cancer um, induced by ultraviolet light. So after this incredibly storied career, she was tapped by uh, then President George W. Bush to be part of this three-person uh, president's cancer panel that looked at different topics each year. And one of the years they decided to look at environmental carcinogenesis. What so, I think is interesting, I'm, I'm interrupting you just because yeah. it's fresh in my head. Yes. They looked at a variety of things and she was advised that only 6% of cancers <laughs> were the result of environmental factors. Yes. But she said, first of all, ultimately, that was completely underreported, um, right. which right. I, I am sad and fascinated by. And the other thing she said was, and, and it is ultimately the power of the film, that it's so much easier to stop the cancers before they happen than talking about fixing the cancers, which I yep. think is such, what, that's one of the biggest lessons I walked away from your film from, mm -hmm. and why I think everyone needs to see this film. Because it's a great reminder of like where the power is in this whole lesson, but. Yeah, well, so, so, you know, it's, it's interesting because Dr. Kripke didn't really wanna address it for the reason, you know, that the topic for the reason that you said that, gee, it's really only 6% of cancers as, you know, stated by, you know, a research study done in the 1980s. Is this really a significant enough topic for us to take on? But she ultimately felt that, well, 6% is still a lot of human beings. So we should look at this. And what I love about her story was that, you know, like a good scientist, she's presented with this new data. And this new data, which is basically testimony, expert testimony from across the country, showed her that, wow, you know, there are these, there are 80,000 chemicals, more than that, that have been introduced into the market since the Second World War. A fraction of them have been tested to see whether or not they're carcinogenic. Of those, only a you know, very few are regulated. And then regulations are often overlooked, you know? And well, so this I just wanna, mind I, blowing experience for her. What, what shocked me was it was another educational experience. You know, when I saw that movie, The 13th, 
about the 13th Amendment. I, I'm a lawyer and I've been a lawyer a long time and I was a political science major. And I thought I knew all about the 13th Amendment and suddenly I, the curtain was pulled away and the seedy side of all of it was revealed. In the same way, your film showed me things that I just assumed that when chemicals hit the market, because we have all these administrations and agencies that everything's properly vetted. You know, since DDT and those bad days, I just assume everything's safe because our government looks at it before it comes out. And the reality is that's a myth. That's, that's a complete it's, lie. It a myth. It's a myth. And I think that that's, you know, that is the feedback that I'm hearing, you know, that the, this film just launched this past week. And I've been getting so many emails from people saying, wow, I was just blown away by this. I had no idea that chemicals aren't regulated. I had no idea that there are things, you know, in our everyday products that could be genetic or, you know, as Dr. Kripke also describes, you know, it's not just kind of like one exposure to one thing. You're exposed to so many different chemicals throughout your life. You know, uh, food. I'm. I have a lot yeah. of European friends, and Holly and I, before the pandemic, traveled to Europe a lot. We were told by some high-end doctors, you should avoid dairy unless you go to Europe. Then it's okay. Mm. Like, why is dairy okay in Europe? Why are so many people in Europe have less food allergies? Like, yeah. what they will not stand for the kind of things that adulterate our food. They don't import American food. I, and it's right. unbelievable. And that's yeah. just, that's a microcosm of all of that. It, it's, it's really, you know, interesting because things like, you know, certain pesticides, um, food additives, food preservatives, you know, those are things that you don't typically find in a lot of, you know, European countries. There are also regulations a whole different sta standard around chemicals and testing that chemicals have to meet certain standards of safety before they're allowed to be, you know, in the market. And we, when we say in the market, it's not like you go out and you buy, you know, benzene or something, <laughs> but, right? But you, but do. These, but these you do. You do, because <laughs> these chemicals end up in everyday products. They end up in you know, our furniture, they end up in cosmetics, they end Cleaning up in toys. You By know. the way, Europeans smoke like crazy. They have no problem with cigarettes. Yeah, but, well, that's uh, not a good thing. <laughs> no, I, I'm, and I'm not saying that's better than the chemicals. I'm just saying it's kind of, it's it's funny and strange. Yeah. Uh, but, but I yeah. think that one of the things that's really important is that, you know, to raise this awareness because i think that as as you know engaged citizens in the world first of all we need to know what's going on and second of all we need to speak out about it you know we need to you know put this on the agenda i mean dr kripke is putting this on the agenda of cancer research but we need to put this on the agenda of you know as concerned citizens for future generations for you know, our own health and safety. And particularly, I mean, you were touching upon how, you know, environmental justice is a huge issue that, you know, 
it's it's been documented that communities of color, poor people, people of color face much higher, you know, exposure burden. You know, well, they li they live in areas. You know, uh, I live in a neighborhood where twenty years ago it was very different in Brooklyn. Now there are literally I have movie star neighbors. I'm not going to list them all, but I see them walking in my neighborhood. We're not going to put a sewage plant in my neighborhood. We're not right. going to put a power plant in my neighborhood. But you're not going to put a gas pipeline beneath your neighborhood. No, and if they got yeah. wind of it, no pun intended, there would be uh, you know a lot of ruckus about it. Yes. Um, but in another neighborhood, which has a lot more people of color, a lot more immigrant, recent immigrants, whatever, it's going to be different. I do want to point out one thing. I have a question about which is. You know, we talk about the differences between America and Europe. Money is has infiltrated and decimated our political system. Yes. You know, long before Citizens United was decided. And yes. if you don't know what I mean, folks, look up, just Google Citizens United Supreme Court and you'll discover the nightmare. Um, but long even before that, we have politics that are, like I said, decimated by money. Europe does not. I'm sure they have their own issues. Their election cycles are much smaller. They have far less media involvement in terms of how the elections run. I mean, their media has its own troubles, to be sure. But do you think that money in politics is part of why we have the pollution and cancer issues we have? And do you think that's a film that you might be interested in doing in the future? Well, you know, I, I think, yes, definitely. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, there are moneyed interests that are um, definitely influencing the political process. Um, certainly petrochemical industry is, is doing that. Certainly, you know, the pesticide industry is doing that. You know, it's it really is um, it's a big problem, and I think that it's very it's also very difficult to combat in kind of a money versus money way, which is why I think that people need to be more engaged and involved in the political process. And to really, first of all, understand, you know, kind of like what the issues are and, and also what, you know, what is kind of like our small, each of our small parts in it. It's not like you have to kind of throw your life away and say, okay, I'm going to take on this issue full time for the rest of my life. But it's to say, you know, this is a problem. And you, as my representative, I want you to put this on your agenda. You know, I happen to live in a state where I don't have to say that to my uh, representative or my senators. I mean, they're you have great senators, okay. one of which was my congressman when I lived there, Ed Markey. Yeah, yeah. Great who's wonderful, guy. who's always been amazing. And Elizabeth Warren and Fantastic. You know, uh, our congressional um, leaders are are just amazing. Um, but we've seen that with this election. I think people, because the prospect of a second term of Trump was so abhorrent, 
to any thinking human being. Um, yeah, I said it. You can write to me at isthatreallylegal.com if you have a problem. <laughs> um, but um, people got far more active in this election, I think, even though they were probably very active in the last one. But people really phone banked. I know that I was involved in, there was a lot of computerized calling from home. They, they did a great job in the Biden campaign organizing people like myself and others. And it's not like we did a ton of stuff. It was certainly within our ability to work a full-time job and take care of our relationships and still take some time out to be politically active. And I think what you're saying, and it's a great opportunity to remind people, it's not a full-time job, but to be a citizen is part of your life and you should take it you know, uh, seriously. And part of that may be just not every four years, but on a regular basis getting involved. Is that what you're saying? That's what we're doing. Yeah, Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. I, I also think that, you know, seeking out information, there's, you know, I'm not sort of suggesting that we can shop our way out of things like this, but at the same time, there are, you know, there are resources to know how can you reduce your exposure to toxics, you know. When you say we can't shop our way out of it, you mean it's not just go to your local food co-op. Not no, just buy green products. Yeah, but you know, if you are able to, if you have access to it, again, this is kind of a privileged, you know, position. But if you can buy organic, that's great. There are, you know, you can shop around for, you know, greener products. Um, that's that's helpful. You know, there are things that you can do, you know, in terms of cleaning products, which are often very toxic. That you know, you don't have to use those to have a clean house and clean right. houses are overrated anyway, but. <laughs> I just I, want people to know you do not live in filth. I mean, I haven't been to your home you in a while. You haven't been here lately. No, <laughs> no, I know. No, it's true. But I think that the thing about it is that, you know, we're looking, we're looking at a lot of kind of big, big issues, right? We're looking at climate change and the effect of climates. You know, I think that toxics really kind of fit in very well with this because we're kind of looking at the same companies, you know, that are also continue to pollute our planet that are also um, polluting our citizens. Well, I think that petrochemical companies, it's a mistake to think of them as just making fuel. Uh, those of us who know a little bit about it know they make pesticides and fertilizers and right. a variety of chemical additives yeah. that uh, sort of the are found. stock of all these other, yeah. Yeah, but they're, and, and to be sure, the way that they have exerted themselves through PR and marketing and whatever is like, look, it's a better world with us. You know, people forget how many people died of starvation and all this other stuff. And I, I understand their point to a point. But there is an expression about uh, something about a curve and diminishing returns, and at, there are there's a cost benefit analysis to be had here. I but don't. There's know also if, yeah, yeah. There's also sustainable farming that I think is not as you know kind of big agribusiness you know kind of profit making, and so that is a another way to go that I'm not an expert, I'm not a scientist, but I do know that, you know, a lot of times what 
what also happens is that um, there's a certain perspective that's that's put out by companies that aren't like a hundred percent true. That there are other I'm ways of doing things. <laughs> are you shocked? I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I think that the era, you know, there's this great image of little family farms that just don't exist anymore. Certainly not in the numbers they did. I also, by the way, I'm keeping an eye on the clock and I'm realizing, yeah. holy cow, this has gone by quickly. I want to make yeah. sure before I forget, how can people see this film? Yes. How can people see this so they know what we're talking about? So it's it's um, totally accessible. It's free. It's, you know, spread the word. Um, the best way of seeing it is um, through a website, um, an organization that I've been working with for a number of years, a wonderful organization that's really looking at this issue of toxics in a holistic and a huge way. It's organizations of scientists and policy people and community-based organizations and stakeholders. It's called Cancer-Free Economy. So if you go to cancerfreeeconomy.org slash unacceptable risk, which is the name of the film, that's how you can see it. And maybe, I don't know, as part of the podcast, maybe you can put the URL in your... <laughs> well, absolutely. You're reminding people it's cancerfreeeconomy.org. And the yes. name of the film is... Unacceptable Risk. Which is a catchy yes. title, uh, <laughs> Unacceptable Risk, which is not the latest Will Smith uh, film. Uh, it is, in fact, your documentary, although it would be great to have Will Smith be in an action film called Unacceptable Risk. But my husband, who is a wonderful songwriter, came up with the title. I have to ah. give him his props for that. You know, I, and I knew your husband long before I knew you, which is still a long time ago. He is an excellent songwriter uh, and wordsmith. And in fact, uh, also he and I share a love of P.G. Woodhouse. Mm. And I believe he's written for the P.G. Woodhouse Society. And as we talk about him, he's another person I think I should have on my show. I just think because you should he's too. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if he'd want yes. to be on my show. Oh, I think uh, he would. Oh, I cool. think if you ask him. He it's would. always the good thing about uh, my show is that Everyone I have on is smarter than me and I'm not shining you up. I'm, I'm amazed and I'm not gonna, I'm not that self-deprecating. I'm a smart person, but I am constantly uh, happy to learn so much uh, when I have people on and uh, I'm doing the same with you right now. So uh, as we're gonna wrap up shortly, what's the next project for you, Cindy? Well, um... So I've also been working on um, a film that, um, for better or for worse, I'm kind of turning the lens on myself a little bit. Um, I, I learned kind of later in my life that I actually have Jewish heritage. And um, it was a shock, but not a total surprise. <laughs> And so um, I forgot to ask about this. So I'm yes. so glad that you brought this up. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So. And it's not a distant, distant relative from 3000 years ago or something. This no, is, it's my it's my maternal grandparents. <laughs> both of them. Both of them. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you went yeah. from I'm not Jewish to I'm half Jewish. 
And I think I'm three quarters Jewish. <laughs> actually. There you go. So are you going to have a Seder this year? Well, I've been to Seders and, you know, sadly, I couldn't go to last year's Seder. So right. I know that I'll have one and I don't know that it's going to be safe to have one this year. That's a valid but, um, Yeah, but eventually, yes. And um, no, it's it's been a very interesting experience. And my, my mother grew up in New York City and I've always had this thing for like New York City in like the 30s and 40s, which is when she essentially grew up. And um, so pre-COVID, I started filming the neighborhood that she grew up in, and she happened to live across the street from the only um, Jewish Orthodox synagogue that's left in Harlem. She grew up on 125th Street in West Harlem, and it's called the Old Broadway Synagogue, and they're wonderful, wonderful people. They let me spend some time and interview them and, you know, and... It was really great. And um, my grandfather had a, a watch repair and jewelry store on 125th Street. That's now um, La La Liquor and Wine. And they're also awesome people who they let me interview them. And, um, you know, it's a very interesting community in that, you know, it's it's one of those communities that constantly Changes, right? Well, for people who right for people who are not from New York or don't know New York, 125th Street is really the heart of Harlem. Please. Well, I mean, there's real interesting diversity. I mean, I you know my experience of filming there, I had never been there, you know, and um, I didn't know what to expect. And you know, it is largely a community of color, and it's a vibrant community of you know, lots of small, you know, stores and restaurants and, you know, people from all over the place and all over, you know, the world, actually. You know, the people that own La La Liquor are from um, sort of first generation from the Dominican Republic. And, you know, I interviewed the daughter um, because the the dad was too shy. And, um, Larissa is her name, and she was named, Lala was named after her. And That's um, sweet. it just makes you understand that really the world is a big place, you know, and, and that we benefit, we all benefit from, you know, having an expanding world because, you know, things change and things, I, I think that our world is so much more interesting, you know, when we can look at it that way. And yeah, there are conflicts. I mean, there've always been conflicts and there will be conflicts, but I think that, you know, for me, it, it's kind of like travel. I like stepping outside of my mundane day to day and it might not always be fun or, you know, feel comfortable, but it's, it's enriching, you know? Will you come back to talk to us yes. when the next film happens? We can Absolutely. Talk that. That's Absolutely. Awesome. I am yeah. so glad we had a chance to reconnect. Me too. And that um, we talked about incredibly interesting and fun things. And it's just a delight to see you and to see your work, which is, you are wonderful. Your work is so important and I appreciate you. So thanks for being on the show. 
Thank you so much. This has been really enjoyable and really fun and, and great to see you. Thank you, Rare. That was my good friend and amazing documentary filmmaker, Cindy McCowan. Her film, Unacceptable Risk, which tells the story of a cancer researcher who rethought their assumptions about the causes of cancer and learned the true burden of environmentally induced cancers. It's a 16 minute long film. You can access it online at www.cancerfreeeconomy.org backslash unacceptable risk. Grab an Abe's muffin while you watch it. It's tasty, it's fun, it won't kill you. It certainly uh, does not have strange chemicals in it. Just tasty goodness. Um, feel free to subscribe to this podcast. Leave uh, me notes at isthatreallylegal.com and review the podcast. But most importantly, take care of yourself and take care of your friends. Wear a mask, get vaccinated, and uh, know that I'll be here with the next episode. So we'll see you then. Bye-bye.